Chapter 8 of Public Opinion by Walter Lippmann. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by The Progressing America Project. Public Opinion. Chapter 8 Blind Spots and Their Value. I have been speaking of stereotypes rather than ideals because the word ideal is usually reserved for what we consider the good, the true, and the beautiful. Thus it carries the hint that there is something to be copied or attained. But our repertory of fixed impressions is wider than that. It contains ideal swindlers, ideal Tammany politicians, ideal jingoes, ideal agitators, and ideal enemies. Our stereotyped world is not necessarily the world we should like it to be. It is simply the kind of world we expect it to be. If events correspond, there is a sense of familiarity, and we feel that we are moving with the movement of events. Our slave must be a slave by nature if we are Athenians who wish to have no qualms. If we have told our friends that we do eighteen holes of golf in ninety-five, we tell them after doing the course in a hundred and ten that we are not ourselves today. That is to say, we are not acquainted with the duffer who foozled fifteen strokes. Most of us would deal with affairs through a rather haphazard and shifting assortment of stereotypes if a comparatively few men in each generation were not constantly engaged in arranging, standardizing, and improving them into logical systems known as the laws of political economy, the principles of politics, and the like. Generally, when we write about culture, tradition, and the group mind, we are thinking of these systems perfected by men of genius. Now, there is no disputing the necessity of constant study and criticism of these idealized versions, but the historian of people, the politician, and the publicity man cannot stop there. For what operates in history is not the systematic idea as a genius formulated it, but shifting imitations, replicas, counterfeits, analogies, and distortions in individual minds. Thus, Marxism is not necessarily what Karl Marx wrote in Das Kapital, but whatever it is that all the warring sects believe, who claim to be the faithful. From the Gospels, you cannot deduce the history of Christianity, nor from the Constitution, the political history of America. It is Das Kapital as conceived, the Gospels as preached, and the preachment as understood, the Constitution as interpreted and administered, to which you have to go. For while there is a reciprocating influence between the standard version and the current versions, it is these current versions as distributed among men which affect their behavior. Footnote. But unfortunately, it is ever so much harder to know this actual culture than it is to summarize and to comment upon the works of genius. The actual culture exists in people far too busy to indulge in the strange trade of formulating their beliefs. They record them only incidentally, and the student rarely knows how typical are his data. Perhaps the best he can do is to follow Lord Bryce's suggestion, Modern Democracies, page 156, that he move freely, quote, among all sorts and conditions of men, end quote, to seek out the unbiased persons in every neighborhood who have skill in sizing up. Quote, there is a flair which long practice and sympathetic touch bestow. The trained observer learns how to profit by small indications, as an old sailor discerns, sooner than the landsman, the signs of coming storm. End quote. There is, in short, 
a vast amount of guesswork involved, and it is no wonder that scholars, who enjoy precision, so often confine their attentions to the neater formulations of other scholars. Quote, the theory of relativity, end quote, says a critic whose eyelids, like the Lady Lisa's, are a little weary, quote, promises to develop into a principle as adequate to universal application as was the theory of evolution. This latter theory, from being a technical biological hypothesis, became an inspiring guide to workers in practically every branch of knowledge, manners and customs, morals, religions, philosophies, arts, steam engines, and electric tramways. Everything had evolved. Evolution became a very general term. It also became imprecise until, in many cases, the original definite meaning of the word was lost, and the theory it had been evoked to describe was misunderstood. We are hardly enough to prophesy a similar career and fate for the theory of relativity. The technical physical theory, at present imperfectly understood, would become still more vague and dim. History repeats itself, and relativity, like evolution, after receiving a number of intelligible but somewhat inaccurate popular expositions in its scientific aspect, will be launched on a world-conquering career. We suggest that by that time it will probably be called relativismus. Many of these larger applications will doubtless be justified. Some will be absurd and a considerable number will, we imagine, reduce to truisms. And the physical theory, the mere seed of this mighty growth, will become once more the purely technical concern of scientific men. End quote. Footnote. The Times of London. Literary Supplement. June 2, 1921. Page 352. Professor Einstein said that when he was in America in 1921, that people tended to overestimate the influence of his theory and to underestimate its certainty. But for such a world-conquering career, an idea must correspond, however imprecisely, to something. Professor Berry shows for how long a time the idea of progress remained a speculative toy. Quote, it is not easy, end quote. He writes, footnote, J.B. Berry, The Idea of Progress, page 324. Quote, for a new idea of the speculative order to penetrate and inform the general consciousness of a community until it has assumed some external and concrete embodiment or is recommended by some striking material evidence. In the case of progress, both these conditions were fulfilled, in England, in the period 1820 to 1850, end quote. The most striking evidence was furnished by the mechanical revolution. Quote, men who were born at the beginning of the century had seen, before they had passed the age of 30, the rapid development of steam navigation, the illumination of towns and houses by gas, and the opening of the first railway, end quote. In the consciousness of the average householder, miracles like these form the pattern of his belief in the perfectibility of the human race. Tennyson, who was in philosophical matters a fairly normal person, tells us that when he went by the first train from Liverpool to Manchester, 1830, he thought that the wheels ran in grooves. Then he wrote this line, quote, Let the great world spin forever down the ringing grooves of change. End quote. Footnote. Tennyson, Memoir by His Son, Volume 1, page 195, cited by Barry, page 326. And so a notion more or less applicable to a journey between Liverpool and Manchester was generalized into a pattern of the universe, quote, forever, end quote. This pattern, taken up by others, reinforced by dazzling inventions, 
imposed an optimistic turn upon the theory of evolution. The theory, of course, is, as Professor Berry says, neutral between pessimism and optimism. But it promised continual change, and the changes visible in the world marked such extraordinary conquests of nature that the popular mind made a blend of the two. Evolution first in Darwin himself, and then more elaborately in Herbert Spencer, was a, quote, progress towards perfection, end quote. The stereotype represented by such words as progress and perfection was composed fundamentally of mechanical inventions. And mechanical it has remained, on the whole, to this day. In America more than anywhere else, the spectacle of mechanical progress has made so deep an impression that it has suffused the whole moral code. An American will endure almost any insult except the charge that he is not progressive. Be he of long native ancestry, or a recent immigrant, the aspect that has always struck his eye is the immense physical growth of American civilization. That constitutes a fundamental stereotype through which he views the world. The country village will become the great metropolis, the modest building a skyscraper. What is small shall be big, what is slow shall be fast, what is poor shall be rich, what is few shall be many, whatever is shall be more so. Not every American, of course, sees the world this way. Henry Adams didn't, and William Allen White doesn't. But those men do, who in the magazines devoted to the religion of success, appear as makers of America. They mean just about that when they preach evolution, progress, prosperity, being constructive, and the American way of doing things. It is easy to laugh, but, in fact, they are using a very great pattern of human endeavor. For one thing, it adopts an impersonal criterion, for another, it adopts an earthly criterion, for a third, it is habituating men to think quantitatively. To be sure, the ideal confuses excellence with size, happiness with speed, and human nature with contraption. Yet the same motives are at work which have ever actuated any moral code, or ever will. The desire for the biggest, the fastest, the highest, or if you are a maker of wristwatches or microscopes, the smallest, the love, in short, of the superlative and the peerless, is, in essence and possibility, a noble passion. Certainly, the American version of progress has fitted an extraordinary range of facts in the economic situation and in human nature. It turned an unusual amount of pugnacity, acquisitiveness, and lust of power into productive work. Nor has it until more recently, perhaps, seriously frustrated the active nature of the active members of the community. They have made a civilization which provides them, who made it, with what they feel to be ample satisfaction in work, mating and play, and the rush of their victory over mountains, wildernesses, distance, and human competition, has even done duty for that part of religious feeling, which is a sense of communion with the purpose of the universe. The pattern has been a success so nearly perfect in the sequence of ideals, practice, and results, that any challenge to it is called un-American. And yet this pattern is a very partial and inadequate way of representing the world. The habit of thinking about progress as development has meant that many aspects of the environment were simply neglected. With the stereotype of progress before their eyes, Americans have, in the mass, seen little that did not accord with that progress. They saw the expansion of cities, but not the accretion of slums. They cheered the census statistics, but refused to consider overcrowding. They pointed with pride to their growth, but would not see the drift from the land, 
or the unassimilated immigration. They expanded industry furiously at reckless cost to their natural resources. They built up gigantic corporations without arranging for industrial relations. They grew to be one of the most powerful nations on earth without preparing their institutions or their minds for the ending of their isolation. They stumbled into world war morally and physically unready, and they stumbled out again, much disillusioned, but hardly more experienced. In the world war, the good and the evil influence of the American stereotype was plainly visible. The idea that the war could be won by recruiting unlimited armies, raising unlimited credits, building an unlimited number of ships, producing unlimited munitions, and concentrating without limit on these alone, fitted the traditional stereotype and resulted in something like a physical miracle. Footnote. I have in mind the transportation and supply of two million troops overseas. Professor Wesley Mitchell points out that the total production of goods after our entrance into the war did not greatly increase in volume over that of the year of 1916, but that production for war purposes did increase. End footnote. But among those most affected by the stereotype, there was no place for the consideration of what the fruits of victory were, or how they were to be attained. Therefore, aims were ignored, or regarded as automatic, and victory was conceived because the stereotype demanded it, as nothing but an annihilating victory in the field. In peacetime you did not ask what the fastest motor car was for, and in war you did not ask what the completest victory was for. Yet in Paris the pattern did not fit the facts. In peace you can go on endlessly supplanting small things with big ones, and big ones with smaller ones. In war, when you have won absolute victory, you cannot go on to a more absolute victory. You have to do something on an entirely different pattern. And if you lack such a pattern, the end of the war is to you what it was to so many good people, an anticlimax in a dreary and savorless world. This marks the point where the stereotype and the facts that cannot be ignored definitely part company. There is always such a point, because our images of how things behave are simpler and more fixed than the ebb and flow of affairs. There comes a time, therefore, when the blind spots come from the edge of vision into the center. Then, unless there are critics who have the courage to sound an alarm, and leaders capable of understanding the change, and a people tolerant by habit, the stereotype, instead of economizing effort, and focusing energy as it did in 1917 and 1918, may frustrate effort and waste men's energy by blinding them, as it did for those people who cried for a Carthaginian peace in 1919 and deplored the Treaty of Versailles in 1921. Uncritically held, the stereotype not only censors out much that needs to be taken into account, but when the day of reckoning comes, and the stereotype is shattered, likely as not that which it did wisely take into account is shipwrecked with it. That is the punishment assessed by Mr. Bernard Shaw against free trade, free contract, free competition, natural liberty, laissez-faire, and Darwinism. A hundred years ago, when he would surely have been one of the tardest advocates of these doctrines, he would not have seen them as he sees them today, in the infidel half-century, footnote, back to Methuselah, preface, to be excuses for, quote, doing the other fellow down with impunity, all interference by a guiding government, all organization except police organization to protect legalized fraud against fisticuffs, all attempts to introduce human purpose, design, and forethought into the industrial welter being, quote, contrary to the laws of political economy, end quote. 
he would have seen then as one of the pioneers of the march to the plains of heaven footnote the quintessence of ibsenism that of the kind of human purpose and design and forethought to be found in a government like that of queen victoria's uncles the less the better he would have seen not the strong doing the weak down but the foolish doing the strong down he would have seen purposes designs and forethoughts at work obstructing invention obstructing enterprise obstructing what he would infallibly have recognized as the next move of creative evolution even now mr shaw is none too eager for the guidance of any guiding government he knows but in theory he has turned a full loop against laissez-faire most advanced thinking before the war had made the same turn against the established notion that if you unloosed everything wisdom would bubble up and establish harmony since the war with its definite demonstration of guiding governments assisted by censors propagandists and spies roebuck ramsden and natural liberty have been readmitted to the company of serious thinkers one thing is common to these cycles there is in each set of stereotypes a point where effort ceases and things happen of their own accord as you would like them to the progressive stereotype powerful to incite work almost completely obliterates the attempt to decide what work and why that work laissez-faire a blessed release from stupid officialdom assumes that men will move by spontaneous combustion towards a pre-established harmony collectivism an antidote to ruthless selfishness seems in the marxist mind to suppose an economic determinism towards efficiency and wisdom on the part of socialist officials strong government imperialism at home and abroad at its best deeply conscious of the price of disorder relies at last on the notion that all matters to the governed will be known by the governors in each theory there is a spot of blind automatism that spot covers up some fact which if it were taken into account would check the vital movement that the stereotype provokes if the progressive had to ask himself like the chinaman in the joke what he wanted to do with the time he saved by breaking the record if the advocate of laissez-faire had to contemplate not only free and exuberant energies of men but what some people call their human nature if the collectivist let the center of his attention be occupied with the problem of how he is to secure his officials if the imperialist dared to doubt his own inspiration you would find more hamlet and less henry v for these blind spots keep away distracting images which with their attendant emotions might cause hesitation and infirmity of purpose consequently the stereotype not only saves time in a busy life and is a defense of our position in society but tends to preserve us from all the bewildering effect of trying to see the world steadily and see it whole end of chapter eight